Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to God is Gray, the podcast. Although I, as a Christian, believe that God resides in absolute truth, in black and white, we as people are stuck here on planet Earth contending with the gray. In church, gray areas often cause dissension, anger, and even hate. But on this platform, I welcome open dialogue, variety of opinion, and differing belief systems. God is Gray is meant to teach, inform, and simply trade stories with kindness, love, and mutual respect. If you have a story or perspective to share, please reach me, Brenda Marie Davies, at GodIsGrayXO at gmail.com. To support the cause and be a part of our community, donate to patreon.com slash gray. Now, on to the episode. Hi, beautiful people. Today we are talking to Laura Anderson. Her and I actually got connected because she very, very kindly <laughs> uh, corrected this misuse of language that I have been guilty of for a while, which was by promoting this idea that religious trauma syndrome exists and is diagnosable and is being treated by certain therapists and clinicians and she just wrote me to be like um you're kind of misrepresenting this concept and it's not exactly what you think it is so I always appreciate a correction from anyone in the God is Great community especially when they happen to be an expert on the subject which Laura is so Laura would you tell everybody a little bit about your background and what qualifies you to tell us what religious trauma syndrome is and is not (laughs) well first of all thank you so much for having me I really appreciate being able to have a conversation about just correct terminology and ideas behind religious trauma. And so I appreciate this platform. Um, I am a licensed psychotherapist. I have a private practice in Nashville, Tennessee, but then I also uh, do coaching work so that I can see clients outside of Tennessee. I specialize in complex trauma. And within that, I see a lot of domestic violence, sexual abuse and assault, and then religious trauma cases, uh, because I do consider religious trauma as complex trauma. Um, I also am getting my PhD and writing my dissertation on the experience of living in a healing body after sexual violence. And I'm the co-founder of the Religious Trauma Institute. So hopefully all of that combined allows me, I don't know that I would say I'm an expert um, because I'm still growing and all these things, but it allows me maybe a platform to talk about what is religious trauma? How does that impact us? What is it not? Why is religious trauma syndrome not really um, an adequate term to use for what we're experiencing? Um, So hopefully we can unpack a little bit of that today. (laughs) That is brilliant. I love it. I always trust an expert that is hesitant to call themselves an expert too, because all it does is imply that you are humble enough to acknowledge you may be wrong and to do the work to correct that if so. Thank you. I appreciate that. Let's pause. I'm going to have to move because I can't dictate when my neighbors mow their lawns and that's happening right now. (laughs) I totally understand that. (laughs) 
<laughs> okay, give me one second. Okay, now we're away from the lawnmower. We're continuing. <laughs> so I will just describe my backstory of how I was introduced to the concept of religious trauma syndrome and then how I've been using slash misusing it, um, just to acknowledge that. So basically when I read Jamie Lee Finch's You Are Your Own, which I admittedly only read one and a half times, so I couldn't actually say that I fully understand every concept in it just with one read, but my understanding was really just coming from a level of excitement I had inside of me. I felt very empowered to feel that I could now label certain experiences that I had that on a professional level from even non-Christian counselors, this was being acknowledged as a thing that any trauma that I had received from church, purity culture, modesty culture was actually becoming something with a cultural awareness to it. So I just latched onto it and was like, it's diagnosable, it's real. And then just started promoting that as a fact. <laughs> and now I understand that's not exactly what Jamie was saying. And then that's not exactly how it works at all. So yeah. <laughs> I appreciate hearing that because I don't think that you are abnormal. I think that there's a lot of people coming out of religious contexts, whether that's evangelicalism Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, like any of these high demand religious groups that find this terminology of religious trauma syndrome, and they do latch onto it because it starts to help organize their experience, um, what they've been through. I know when I first read that term too, I was like, oh my gosh, like this absolutely describes my experiences. And it did feel like a sense of comfort in knowing that I was maybe not the only one who was experiencing this. Yeah. Um, so I think as I continue to dig into what is religious trauma syndrome, or as it was defined by its creator, Mar uh, Dr. Marlene Winnell, is um, I just found some inadequacies with it and kind of some contradictions. And that's where I really started to dig more and um, try to create some other language that might be um, more accurate, like clinically accurate, so that we could be able to go to our therapists, whether they are from church or or identify in a specific faith system or if they are quote-unquote secular that we could talk about religious trauma in a way that would be um, understood by the professional community as well as impactful and meaningful for those of us who have religious trauma um, so I appreciate hearing that and I don't know if you want me to go into breaking things down or what religious trauma is you you tell me what you want to hear today <laughs> so I would like to talk about the original inception of this term, where she got it from, and what kind of progress has been made since mm -hmm. that moment? Yeah, that's a great question to start with. So like I said, Dr. Marlene Winnell is the one who coined the term religious trauma syndrome. And I don't remember exactly what year she wrote her book, Leaving the Fold. I want to say it was roughly 30 years ago. Um, and she had done a bit of kind of some anecdotal research, which simply means like she's observing her clients and these sorts of things. And that's where she started to coin this term from. Um, to date, there's not been any um, what's called empirical evidence to support this as a diagnosis. Empirical evidence is the this the research behind it, the studies with the control groups and the you know and these sorts of things. And 
anecdotal evidence, which is our lived experience, is very important. That's actually what drives empirical evidence. But most people would say anecdotal evidence isn't where it stops. Like we have to have more than that. And so whenever we look at any sort of diagnosis, what we see behind it is mountains of research. And, and just because there's mountains of research doesn't even mean that it'll be an official diagnosis, but that's something common that we can see. So when we look at something like religious trauma syndrome, we, um, we see that there's not any research behind it and there's been no like forward progression in terms of introducing that language on a professional level into clinical communities and these sorts of things. And the term itself is very, in my opinion, misleading. So we just kind of break it down a little bit. If we look at the word syndrome, if you were just to even do a quick Google search of like, what is a syndrome? What you'll notice is it's a cluster of symptoms that kind of all go together. And so when we see a syndrome pop up in someone, we go, yeah, we can pretty much count on these five, six, seven, eight symptoms all being present. And so that's kind of the defining factor of a syndrome. So when we put religious trauma and syndrome together, we see that there should be, according to that word, very specific things that happen if you have religious trauma syndrome. You'd always have this symptom and this output and you know, these sorts of things. And we, we just know that that's not true. We know there's a lot of things that are common within trauma, but we can't say this is exactly how it's going to manifest in any individual's life. The other thing with that is that it really pathologizes religion. It says, if you are in a religion, you are going to have mental health issues and they will look like this. And again, we know that's not true, just practically speaking. But also, I think that's a pretty bold claim to pathologize religion and say it is absolutely 100% harmful. It will cause mental health issues. And therefore, kind of the opposite side of that would be let go of all religion, faith, become an atheist, maybe agnostic, um, but that's going to kind of solve the problems here. Again, we just, we can't say that. Our human experiences are far too subjective yeah. uh, to be able to say that. So that's kind of why I have a problem with that term in particular. And it's also very limiting too. It, just, it doesn't kind of um, cover the expansiveness of what trauma actually is, um, which is maybe another question we'll get into. But that's, that's where I like to start when we talk about religious trauma syndrome or why it's not the term to use. Yeah. Okay. So in, in real life, the way that looks for me is I had this very distinct moment where I realized, and I was drawn back to not only Jamie's book, but Linda K. Klein's book, Pure, where mm -hmm. I kept battling at the beginning of God is Gray, which is a little over two years ago, I believe. Mm -hmm. Um, I felt like, oh, I have to get back into church because people are expecting me to be the mm -hmm. spiritual teacher and I, I won't be honest if I'm not actually attending a church service. So I was dating churches, I was calling it, and just <laughs> going that. every Sunday to a different one and like trying to find where I would fit in. And I was doing it mm -hmm. earnestly. Mm -hmm. But every single time I went, you know, it was a struggle to get out of bed. I would drive there. My heart would start sinking. My heart would start pounding. My stomach would start nodding up. And then when I was actually in the church service, if anyone walked up and tried to talk to me, I felt afraid of them. Like my whole body would tense oh, up and no. I got scared. Mm -hmm. And then I was feeling nauseous. And it was funny because I was just trying to talk myself out of it. I was like, 
you are now a religious teacher in a way. So you, like, I kept being like, no, you have the power behind you. You've done your research. These people can't hurt you anymore. These spaces can't hurt you anymore. And the embodiment practice of Jamie's book helped me realize, oh, I'm not honoring my body. My aunt, my body is saying, I don't want to be here and I'm forcing her to come. Right. So then when I read the term religious trauma syndrome, I was like, oh, that's a symptom Mm -hmm. of the trauma that I've experienced. So if that is not, you know, like you're saying, there's so many complications. Like some people have been sexually Mm -hmm. assaulted by their pastor. Some Mm -hmm. people have just heard stories about that. Some people Mm -hmm. have been told their clothes don't fit them well and they have to go home and change. Some people have been told they couldn't be cured of an illness or they kept losing money because they weren't doing things right. Like I see so many angles from which people have been quote traumatized by their church experience. Mm -hmm. Colonization is traumatizing for some. Yes. So Mm -hmm. all of that said, we have all these unique experiences, but they all seem to be manifesting from the same spirit, almost like the same place of like, I earnestly gave my spiritual being to this mm-hmm. place or this organization or this group of people. And then the output of that was these things that I experienced 10 years later of nausea. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, yeah. what is the explanation for all of that and everything? Yeah. Well, it absolutely sounds like a trauma response for sure. And that's why I think it is so important to have Uh, basic knowledge of what trauma is. And so when we look at trauma, we see that trauma is not a thing that happens to you. It's not an event or an experience, but that trauma is our body, our nervous system's response to the thing that happens to us. And when I talk about response, I'm talking about anything that kind of like overwhelms our natural ability to cope with something. And so when we understand trauma that way, we also understand that it's quite subjective. So what is traumatic for you may or may not be for me and vice versa. And there's a lot of factors that kind of determine how our body responds and if we carry that as trauma or not. But it means that you and your sibling could have gone to the same church, been in the same programs and grown up in the same house, but how you respond to it might be very different than a sibling responds to it, despite the sameness of the things that happened. And so that's why we have to be very careful to say like, oh, this thing in and of itself is not traumatic. It's how my body responded to that thing, that sense of overwhelm, danger, inability to find safety. So there is no thing that is inherently traumatic. Um, If if that were the case, we could say, you know, if we're like car accidents are always traumatic, then it would mean that anybody who has witnessed or been in a car accident would have trauma. We know that's not true. There's some people that walk away perfectly unscathed now and in the future. And there's other people that are very traumatized that can't get back into a car. And so when we look at what is trauma and what is religious trauma, we have to recognize that subjective nature of it. Trauma is also very perceptive. So it doesn't actually, this this potentially dangerous thing doesn't have to be in front of you for real. And I think the best example of that in religious context is the idea of hell. And so Mm -hmm. we go, we can't actually see hell. (laughs) We don't, there's not like a plane ticket that you can purchase to go there, right? So we don't actually know if it's even real, but the idea and the perception that there is this place that I would go to of eternal conscious torment if I do this, this, or this, or I don't do this, this, or this, 
can overwhelm our nervous system to the to the point where we start to it, ex, the experience of trauma. We end up being traumatized by that. And so then when we're, you know, re, we, let's say we've rejected that belief, we no longer go to that church or, or whatever it is, and we're, we're in our normal lives and we do this thing that previously we were taught would lead us to hell, oftentimes our bodies can have a very, very visceral response to that because our minds are, are, even though our minds have shifted, our bodies are still believing that same message. That's why we can't think trauma away. We actually have to process it through the body. Mm. So your experience even if you weren't consciously aware of it, it sounds like your body was going, this is a dangerous place for me. And I'm going to let you know through some very physical or physiological symptoms that this isn't safe. We need to get out. We need to run quite literally. I think, you know, Jamie uses such a great example in her book where she talks about like how, when she would literally like walk out the doors of the church, all of those symptoms would just disappear completely. Mm -hmm. And that's a very like easy way to tell your body was very much not feeling safe in that environment. And once you're out of it, it's like, Oh, okay. I I'm safe. Right. Yeah. Um, so that's a little bit about religious trauma, how that can be experienced. It's also interesting. It feels like such a disparity, like because I didn't have any physical or sexual trauma, the amount of fear response my body was producing made me feel like a ridiculous person. Mm -hmm. Like I, I just wanted, mm -hmm. I was talking to myself, I was like, girl, get it together. You're being mm -hmm. such a weirdo. You know, it's like, it really felt like you're describing Jamie's experience the girl in the horror movie that finally escapes the killer and mm -hmm. it's safely on her way home. <laughs> just like, yeah. why am I feeling like that walking out of the church when I didn't have mm -hmm. something like an experience mm -hmm. that I could perceive to be traumatic enough to make my body mm -hmm. react this way? That's mm -hmm. one part of the question. Another one, could you also discern the difference between a physical reaction and a physiological reaction so people understand? Yeah, really quickly, they're pretty much the same. Okay. <laughs> um, when we talk about physiology, we're talking about the nervous system and like what's happening in our body, which manifests in a physical way, usually. So in my experience, I use those words interchangeably, but something about saying the word physiological, people are like, yeah, that's like inside me or something. And I'm like, yeah, it just might come out in shaking or it might come out in like a need to run or... Um, anxiety, sweaty, like sweatiness and these sorts of things. So it appears maybe in a physical way, but it's this physiological reaction that you're having. Yeah. Going back to your question though, um, you know, I don't, like you said, I don't have this quote unquote thing that is traditionally kind of thought to be as leading to trauma. And that's why it's so important to understand that trauma isn't a thing. Like it doesn't have to be a thing that happens to you. It's the way that your body and nervous system responds to something or maybe messaging or ideas of something or relationships. And your body is sensing this is dangerous. This is not safe for me. I am overwhelmed. I don't know how to cope with this in a way that kind of can return me back to a sense of normal, safety, grounded. And so our, our body then is left to kind of figure out how do I navigate this in a way, usually fight, flight, freeze, or fawn mm -hmm. so that I can get to a place of safety. So there's a lot of people coming out of churches that would say, but I didn't, I wasn't 
assaulted by the pastor. I, my parents didn't spank me. I didn't have X, Y, or Z experience, but yet my body is physiologically, physiologically responding to being in a church building. And that's where I would say, so something in your body sensed this is a dangerous space, even though we can't mark it back maybe to this one moment in time that, that this happened. Um, you know, earlier when I was introducing myself, I said, I believe religious trauma is complex trauma. And so what that essentially means is, you know, we have our kind of shock traumas, the car accident, the war, the sexual assault, where you can kind of point back to this thing happened and the result was my body was traumatized. Complex trauma is more looking at like over time, things have happened where my nervous system has consistently and constantly perceived threat. So whether that's purity culture messaging, um, you know, messages around hell, punishment, who should I be as a uh, human, uh, as a woman, as a man, like what, you know, and, and it's this over time, our body's taking in these messages going, this is really threatening to me. This is overwhelming because if I don't do these things, there's this eternal consequence that's looming out there, right? Mm -hmm. And if I don't do this, this is going to be really bad and that feels really dangerous. So it sounds like maybe that's closer to your experience of like over time, these messages are just so threatening to your body that then you, you walk back into church and you're like, no, no, no. Like this is the place where it all happened. Yeah. I can't be here. I think yeah. you just bringing that up, that brings a lot of clarity because I would say the through line is that I've always wanted to be a really good girl. That's always been very important to me. Yeah. And it was very traumatic to be a good girl and then be told you're being a bad girl. It, it, that yeah. I think is probably the root of it for me because the experiences that come back to me are flashing back to one of my beautiful gay friends, him and I unfortunately lost our relationship forever after this because he invited me to an awards show for this play that he was in. And my youth, I was like, I want to do that. I want to support him. I was doing the good girl thing. I was being a good friend. And my pastor told me, no, I had to be at youth group. How could you even think that that was the right thing to do? How could like to make me really believe that I had actually made the wrong bad choice. I should have known better. I remember watching a soccer game one day and just like leaning over and clapping and my pastor coming up and just whispering like, how dare you not wear a bra? Don't like, why would you not wear a bra? And me having not even realized that I needed to wear a bra. So mm -hmm. I'm thinking the thing that is my problem is going in feeling like I have to extra prove that I'm not a bad person. And that even when I do manage to prove that you will find a major fault in me. And I will also be accused of having willfully yeah. done the wrong thing when I'm like just trying my best to do the right thing. Yeah. yeah. Well, you think of even just like the nature of an accusation, our automatic response to that is going to be defense, right? Because th this means like somebody has said something or, or whatnot, that means I'm not right. I'm incorrect. Even if we actually are wrong or whatnot, but that accusation, like our reptilian brain, which is our most kind of basic functioning goes, 
there's a threat that's dangerous. So now I'm kind of moving into this place of trauma responsiveness where I have to do something to, to ensure my own safety. So yeah, so you, you are doing things very innocently and somebody goes, you are wrong. You did the bad thing. My body is automatically going to go on the defense and go danger, danger, danger. What do we need to do to get ourselves out of this? You know, I think in the church, especially, especially for women or people that were socialized as women, um, this fawn response, which is please appease, submit, you know, make sure that everybody else is okay. That's quite common among women in uh, high demand religious systems. And so in those moments where somebody accuses you of something, you're already used to not having a voice or autonomy or being able to trust yourself. And so there's this automatic, that person must be right. I'm a horrible person. So now we're introducing shame into the picture and shame and trauma mirror each other quite quite closely. Oh, um, oh, I have so many theories about shame. I think yeah. shame is their primary enemy, shame and fear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, shame, the way you, if you think about the way you feel in your body, when you feel ashamed about something, this means there's something wrong with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way you might feel as a trauma response towards, you know, uh, doing the thing that you weren't supposed to do oftentimes it's very similar. And so our body has a similar response to shame as it would that overwhelming event. And because they're so closely tied in religious contexts, it's like you can't even like uncouple those things. That makes so much sense because even with shame, I always describe it as an external force, Mm -hmm. but it becomes internalized when you take it on. You kind of have to accept that invitation shame invites you to have it's like a vampire like can i come in and then you let it in but the real way to be truly invited to shame is being told Mm -hmm. when i got dressed that morning i am inherently bad because i i just didn't even think to put on a bra like how how distrustful should i be of myself that i didn't even think to know that that was the wrong thing to do so then it becomes an internalized i am wrong i cannot be trusted i don't know how to make choices that honor my brothers in church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't know like what denomination or whatnot you grew up in. I grew up in a very reformed theology, Calvinistic um, mindset, which starts off with total depravity. So there is nothing good about you from the moment that you were born and took your first breath. You were this Hate awful, it. Sinful, Hate it. Right? <laughs> yes. So when you think about that though, that means then you're being taught that from the moment you were born, you are inherently sinful. And that message is reinforced over and over and over. So you want to talk about shame, like from the moment that you're born, that's present. And then we have all of these external sources affirming this. And so when we get to a moment where you lean over and you're not wearing a bra and somebody comes and says something to you, it's a subconscious response that of course I'm wrong. Like I'm just born to be wrong. I have to listen to this external source to tell me what is right and wrong. And, and so then that decreases any amount of trust we might have left in ourselves. And it just proves I can't trust myself. Even in these little tiny things, like what shirt should I wear this morning and what should I put on under my short shirt or not? And I can't even trust myself for that. Oh, so and you can, that's yeah. why then, you know, you get out of this and you're, 
you go, you look at your closet and you're like, what should I wear in the morning? It's that's why you might feel debilitated or debilitated because I don't even know what shirt to wear. I can't trust myself. I need somebody else to give an external affirmation to tell me that what I'm doing is okay. And that can feel like, uh, can be triggering. It can feel re-traumatizing. It's yeah, it kind of permeates everything. Okay. That's very clarifying. I would love to like probably circle back around to religious trauma, how, how we should actually define it and how these are correlated because I feel like now we've addressed Mm -hmm. when you haven't had a violent physical trauma or a pointed trauma where you could be like, that was the moment where something happened. So I have a very difficult time with the existence of the internet and all this information. I feel deeply in pain all the time by just hearing more and more stories of the human experience, what people are subjected to. And with my platform, I hear so many personal stories of sexual abuse and actual moments that occur in church. And I've been really curious about the resilience of the human spirit. It blows my mind, you know, that a child could be sex trafficked and become whatsoever a a person in society that can function. Mm -hmm. I think that is the most miraculous thing in the world. Mm -hmm. And if they're healed and they've achieved that level, then I'm even more blown away that, that, that we're capable of that. So, um, I would love to just do a little dive into what happens when it's a pointed experience. And then what does it look like to just trust that you can actually be resilient and get the kind of healing you hear other people get? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm a big believer that our bodies really do have the tools we need kind of inherently to be able to heal from things. If we want to call that resiliency, that's totally fine. I think that that's a valid word to use. Um, Now, just because we have the tools doesn't necessarily mean we know how to use them. But when I look at how our bodies are created, you know, physiologically, psychologically, there, we, we have what's in us. There's natural instincts, natural um, kind of things that, we, that our bodies want to do if we're paying attention. Um, you know, a great example, I can, I can use this and hope this maybe content warning, I'm going to talk about a car accident. Um, I witnessed a really, really horrific car accident about a year, year and a half ago. And it was to the point where if, if the person had swerved even just a little bit, I would have been in the car accident instead of just witnessing it. And I knew enough about my own physiology um, to to understand what was happening. And so as kind of the dust is settling and there's people gathering around, I got out of my car and I just like, I knew that my body wanted to shake vigorously. And and I know people can't see me, but I'm kind of like waving my arms up in the air. And these people were looking at me and I literally looked at them and I said, I don't care what you think of me. My body is more important. And I just kind of like shook out this energy because what had happened is I saw the car accident about to happen in my rear view mirror. So my hands tightened from my steering wheel. I braced my entire body for this impact that I might feel. So there's all this energy that's stuck inside of me. And, and then when my body realized like, 
oh, we're actually safe. We're good. Like the car accident has happened and we are safe. There needed to be a discharge of that energy. Now, if I had just stuck up in my cognitive brain, I would have been like, eh, I'm good. I'm safe. I wasn't hit. So there should be no problems. But because trauma is the experience in our body and the energy that's going through our body, my body said, no, we still got this all running through us. And, and so I just tuned in and it was like, well, what, what do you want to do then? And it was like, we need to like shake this all out. And I cried a little bit and hugged a person. I have no idea who it was, but that was what my body needed in order to release all this energy so that I didn't become paralyzed in fear to drive my car again or drive that patch of the highway again or whatnot. So when we pay attention to what our body is needing, if we have the capacity to do that, if we actually are journey, right. Um, and, and if we have the capacity, then when we listen to our bodies, there is a great potential of like in that moment or after the moment, being able to work that energy through so that our body's not storing it, um, storing the trauma energy, and then looking for a way out in other areas. Does, does that kind of make sense? No, absolutely. And I was just thinking about how after a breakup or, or a sad moment with romance, I would always like get down to my underwear and dance around my living room. And yes. I honestly never, again, until I read Jamie's book, did I realize that I was intuiting my body and that I needed to shake it off and I needed to mm-hmm. do that to press mm-hmm. into the next phase of yeah. whatever the healing process would be. Yeah. So I think it's easier, you know, it sounds weird. Like I don't, I don't think trauma does not have levels. It's not one thing worse than the other. Sometimes there's more grave consequences uh, for certain things that happen. Um, But it is when we, when we're in the trauma world, sometimes it is easier to work through some of that shock trauma where we can point back and say this thing happened because then we can actually go back to that point in time and process the, our bodily energy, trauma energy that from that point. When we talk about something like religious trauma, where for many people, there wasn't just that one point. It was, I grew up in this um, and, and this was just a lifestyle. The harder part is going, there was, there was never a before it's, this is just how it's always been. So I don't have a time, like I could look back and go, there was moments before that car accident where I can remember feeling safe on the road. Um, but if I have <laughs> was in car accidents, my whole entire life, I might not have that. Yeah. So when we look at religious trauma, there are a great many people who never have that before point where they can remember what safety felt like. And so when we're dealing with trauma from that perspective, really the first thing that we're looking to do is create a sense of internalized safety and stability, which oftentimes takes a long time. Cause remember, we're not supposed to trust ourselves. So if yeah. we don't trust ourselves, how can we feel safe within ourselves? So there's a lot of unpacking to be there. <laughs> Yeah, but that's where we process trauma from then is once we start to be able to create some internal safety that allows us then to have moments where we can experience feeling empowered, using healthy aggression to push people away, say no, set boundaries. And that not, doesn't, not physically, I'm assuming. <laughs> no, not, that's what I was say. it doesn't mean we actually have to do that, but that's how we reprocess that. So maybe you were at an altar call at church and you were just like, my body's so overwhelmed. And what I wish I could have done in that moment was scream no and turn around and run away. Well, we need to give our body that opportunity. So maybe in a 
therapy session or out in the woods, you, you literally let yourself say, no, shut up, you know, whatever it is. And I do imagine myself running away and I might pump my arms or move my legs to get that energy out of my body. Um, and so our bodies really do know how to release this. It's just if we allow ourselves to become embodied to pay attention to that. And I think something to just note is if this is woo-woo, I don't care who, whatever. Oh, I am the biggest <laughs> woo-woo person. My PhD is in mind-body medicine. There's yeah. nothing too extreme for me. <laughs> but I'm just thinking again, I think of, you know, when we talk about the quote enemy or Satan mm -hmm. or the devil, mm -hmm. that really it's just this antagonistic voice in the book that I have coming out. I call it the antagonist. Mm -hmm. And it just invites you to shame and fear and pain. It's like an invitation. Just like I said, that vampiric knock at your door, like, can I come in? You can actually say no to some of these things. I know some things are incredibly traumatic and you just take things on and you don't even see it coming. But like, for example, if you're in the middle of a forest, you're by yourself or you're in the presence of friends who you trust and love. And all of a sudden you want to do an exercise like this. When you hear that whisper of you look like a dumbass. You look silly. That's not your creator. That's not love. That is, you know, I just think about all this repression from the movement of our bodies, even this whole scandal of the JLo Shakira dance on the Super Bowl. It's like, mm -hmm. for how many years we've been repressing people to not dance, to not move your body in a certain way. That's a lot of times why I dance very sexually in my house when I'm alone, because I'm like, my, my hips just need to move this way. And yeah. then you talk to someone like you, we haven't discussed this yet, but I've talked to people in your profession where it's like, yeah, actually, if you move your pelvic bones in a certain way, you can start releasing certain sexual traumas. And it's amazing how often we've been stunted from this growth because that antagonist little voice is just telling us we look stupid. So I invite everyone to reject that invitation and just get healing in whatever body way your body is asking you to. Yeah. You know, you said, I thought of this earlier, you said something, but you brought it up again, this, this voice, right? And it's connected to you know, this antagonist, the devil, evil, whatever you want to call it, but it's also attached then to God because, you know, there's this hierarchy and these sorts of things. Those are, that's a voice of control. And whenever we look at like dynamics of control, dynamics of power, that's abuse. Mm. It, it really is. That's what it underlays abuse is power and control. And so you hear these things where you're not allowed to act like that. You shouldn't do this. That's evil. That's bad. That's this or that. And that's somebody, somebody's interpretation of they can call it God's voice. They can call it whatever they want, but that don't sound like God's voice to me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so anytime we have any voice coming in saying, you can't do that. That's evil. That's bad. Whether you want to attribute that to the antagonizer or you want to attribute that to God, I would say that's a voice of abuse. That's a voice of power and control, which um, depending on what God you follow, that doesn't seem very godly. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, yeah. And so it's this idea that when we hear that in those in abuse, like it's not difficult then that these things would result in trauma because we've heard this over and over and we're embodying those messages so that when I am in my kitchen alone wanting to dance and I feel like I can't, it's not because I physically can't or I don't even want to. It's because that voice 
is still there going, oh no, you shouldn't because that's evil and sinful. Mm -hmm. And so that's why it's so important to understand that trauma isn't something you can just think away. You can't just shift your mindset. It's not going to look the same for everybody. It really is processed through your body. Um, So yeah, so then when you're moving your hips and you go, there is something unlocking here. There's something that is like releasing here. That is, it's a very spiritual, holy moment. It's also a healing moment. Um, where you really are able to process things through that were stuck there before because Mm -hmm. of whatever has happened. I completely agree. I feel that so hard. And that I would argue is the true God's voice. When you start Mm -hmm. getting that release and that healing, that's Mm -hmm. the God that I know. That's great. Yeah. Um, well to wrap it up, what is a more accurate way to describe this. And I would just honestly say, I don't want to let go of terminology that has helped me define my experience, but I also don't want to misrepresent it. So how do we still get the representation? How do we advocate for more professionals, even knowing what this is or how to deal with it so we can advocate for ourselves when finding therapy or finding a doctor? What's the answer? (laughs) So really, quite frankly, the term is religious trauma. Just take that word syndrome off the end of it. Oh, yeah. Bye. The (laughs) (laughs) The reason why that's important, though, is because religious trauma is trauma. So the way that we treat the trauma from religion is no different than the way that we're going to treat trauma from war, trauma from, uh, you know, developmental years, trauma from car accidents any of these things, how trauma lives inside of our bodies is very similar from one event to the next. Does that kind of make sense right there? Mm -hmm. So that's, again, we go, trauma is not the thing that happened. It's how our bodies or nervous systems respond. And so that thing could be the altar call. It could be the sexual assault. It could be in the bunkers at war. It could be in a car accident how our bodies respond, fight, flight, freeze, fawn. That's pretty universal. Mm. Um, And so when we we use the word religious, that's just giving us a little bit more context around where some of these things happened and maybe even some unique treatment, like treatment options. So um, for instance, like in somebody that has religious trauma, we might have to do some work around boundaries with family members who are still in that religion. Mm. Whereas somebody who has trauma from war, we're probably not going to have to do that. Um, Trauma from war, we're going to probably have to work through a car backfire and the noise and and what can happen there. Probably not going to happen with religious trauma. So the the word religious is kind of an adjective. It just gives us a bit more context to understand some of the unique things that happen because of these specific Um, events and systems that we're involved in. But religious trauma is trauma. So the way we treat it is going to be the same as how we treat any other kind of trauma. And that's really important because it means that I don't have to go to somebody who specializes in religious trauma. I need to go and find a therapist who's trauma trained and knows how to work with trauma, preferably through the body, and, and they might need to get educated on how does this manifest from religion? There's resources for that, but they don't have to come up with some new modality and, and new things to do just because my trauma is resulting from religion. Okay. 
Does that kind of clarify that? No, that's great. And that leaves that door wide open to professionals. Yes. And it also leaves the idea. So when we talked about the word syndrome, syndrome is this cluster of symptoms. And we know that how trauma manifests itself for people is very different. So for some people, it might be through uh, depression and anxiety. Other people, it might be through isolation. And so when we use the term trauma, it opens it up to actually include kind of all of these experiences to say, as a result of my trauma, I, I am feeling more depressed or more anxious or more isolated or over-sexualizing things or under, you know, like hypo or hyper-sexualizing. Uh, it's impacting my relationships, my gastrointestinal issues, all the things. And, and you might have some of those and I might not have some of those, but it, it then allows everything to kind of go, yeah, that's, it's very possible that this thing that you're dealing with is a result, is, is trauma living inside you. And this is how your body's kind of playing it out, how it's looking in your life. So then we don't have to have it so defined and in a box and like, oh, well, because you don't tick off these symptoms, you don't actually have any trauma, you know, um, <laughs> which would feel really deflating, right? Um, but yeah. when we go, yeah, like here's this term that's open. And I know that these things are stemming from, you know, religious systems, it, it can look unique and individualized. Um, and that usually does feel more empowering. That's great. Thank you so yeah. much for this yeah, education yeah. on religious trauma, period. Yes, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> That's great. I will correct myself from here on out. How can everybody find you online if they'd like to go follow or hit you up about any questions? Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, well, I have a website, lauraandersontherapy.com. I do have a ton of resources on there, books, podcasts. This podcast is on there. Um, and then Instagram is where I'm most active with social media. And my handle is the same, Laura Anderson Therapy. Or I also run the Religious Trauma Institute um, Instagram page. And so I try to keep that updated. Uh, and that's just, the handle is Religious Trauma Institute. And then that's our website also. So we've got a bunch of free resources on there. We've got some more coming out very, very soon. Um, so people can connect with me either of those ways. Um, but yeah try to be active there. Okay. Awesome. Well, yeah. thank you so much, Lara. Thank you everyone that stuck around. Just always remember you don't have to be in any sort of complacency when it comes to your healing, your happiness, your joy in this life. So seek healing, seek pleasure, seek divinity in the midst of it all. And we love you all so much. God bless.